humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 167. I sat down with Paul Kudinaris. Now, some of you may recognize his name, many of you may not, uh, but I would gather that you have probably seen his photography and just didn't know it. Paul is a photographer, as I mentioned, an author, uh, and an art historian. He is a member of the Order of the Good Death, and this conversation took place in his insanely cool house. Uh, It's more like a giant art installation, and in fact, uh, it's such a sight to behold that uh, I want you all, to, that's all of you that are listening, to go to Facebook's, uh, the Hey Human page on, on Facebook. It's under facebook.com slash heyhumanpodcast, where you can see images that I took the day of this interview and see video of his house and of Paul himself. Um, wow, what an adventure that was. I've never seen anything like it. Um, giant heads of animals and bodies of animals, uh, taxidermy, and paintings, and religious artifacts, and puppets. Oh my gosh, just so many wild and wonderful and bizarre things. Uh, Paul himself, wild, wonderful, and bizarre. Uh, He invited me into his home, and that was very kind. And since the taping of this, which was last week, he has dismantled everything. On Sunday, uh, while I was at Comic-Con, which is a whole other story. Wow, that was crazy. Um, uh, Paul invited all his friends in, and everyone got to take something or a few things uh, from the house. So he took apart the installation, (laughs) dismantled his home, as it were, uh, which I think was probably quite a a sight to behold in and of itself. He said the whole thing took about two hours. I'm sure building that place out took many, many years. Um, I've included in the pictures, pictures of the outside as well of the house, because that's really cool to see. It was a super hot day, and we sat on the floor and chatted, and you'll hear airplanes going by. I think a couple helicopters went by as well. And then at the very end, uh, our mutual friend, Ruth Waits, who uh, has been on Hey Human podcast, and she's episode 72. That was from October 31st, 2017, which is very fitting when you hear the episode. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to let you know about the airplanes, so you'll hear that. Um, and then at the very end, when he was telling me about some of the artwork in the house, he kind of leaned back, and because the artwork is, many many of the pieces are attached to the ceiling, so he was leaning back and talking. So it's a little more difficult to hear him, but I think, and it's probably okay. I, when I listened back, I, I was able to hear stuff. So remember, go to Hey Human Podcast on Facebook to check out the videos and photos. Um, and you definitely want to do that. It's pretty cool. We had this really interesting conversation. Uh, death as a commodity is fascinating to me. And uh, we talked about that. And, and the fear of death, especially, is certainly a huge commodity. Uh, the stay young forever vibe is going strong. 
so anyway it was a really fascinating conversation for me and hopefully for you as well usual stuff heyhumanpodcast.com tons of links on the links page for this episode i know i say that every time but for sure this one uh including paul's books uh they're all there so they're easy to find on that links page um amazon portal on the front page of the hey human podcast website if you shop amazon please do so through that portal and uh, it helps support hey human helps keep it ad free uh susan at heyhumanpodcast.com if you want to reach out to me susanruth.com if you want to check out the other stuff i do and then of course social media as i mentioned facebook i've also got instagram under hey human podcast and if you want to check out my personal social medias they're all under susanruthism s-u-s-a-n r-u-t-h-i-s-m and of course please rate and review hey human podcast on itunes you listen to the show please take a moment go on itunes give it a rating give it a review it's humongously helpful and i really appreciate it okay without further ado let's get into this uh i'm excited here we go paul kudinaris Yes. Yes. Hi. Welcome. Thank to you. Hey, human. Thank you for having me. We are here in your extraordinary home in Los Angeles. I be my home for one more day. And you're dismantling I'm it. Dismantling it, yeah. And your house is famous, <laughs> if not infamous. <laughs> so both. Uh, so I am told. Um, for those who are listening online, I guess, and don't um, have never seen it or, or aren't seeing it, it's kind of like if. Uh, if Hieronymus Bosch did a painting for Rudyard Kipling, maybe. <laughs> I'm throwing some Escher on the side. There's, <laughs> There's a large amount of taxidermy and uh, a large amount of mannequins and paintings coming down from the ceiling and some other random stuff. The dolls are really something. This, this wow, life size. That is not a doll. That's a life size marionette from the Burmese National Puppet Theater. Oh, wow. How did you acquire that? I brought her back from Asia in a suitcase. I, I was calling her my wife jokingly as we traveled. She was all packed in a bag. I'm sure, the TSA loved that. <laughs> That's, uh, they didn't care. That's not what they're looking for. Right. If she had been stuffed with heroin, that would have been a whole other story. Uh, I want to start. Uh, you, Ruth, my friend Ruth, yes. and your friend Ruth introduced me to you. And. She said, you have to check out these pictures on Instagram. So I went and I said, okay, yes, I'm in. Who is this person? And then, of course, I looked you up and saw that you are many things, photographer, author, uh, a curious curiosity toward death and all the things of ritual. And Well, I've written three books on the topic of different, different cultural approaches to death. I, I wrote one book about the history of, of charnel houses being church bone rooms. Uh, I wrote a second book about... Um, I had kind of rediscovered, because I have a PhD in art history, I've done a lot of art history and archaeological work, and I had kind of rediscovered a body of uh, Baroque-era jeweled skeletons, really, really beautiful, that had just been overlooked and kind of hidden in the closet, literally. A lot of them were just hidden away because the Catholic Church was kind of embarrassed about how how beautifully macabre they were and how they just didn't fit modern standards anymore. And then I wrote a more global book called Memento Mori uh, that just kind of detailed uh, my travelings across the globe and um, visiting and participating in a lot of death-related rituals. 
How old were you when you first thought about death? Contemplated your yeah, own? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good question. And uh, I was in elementary school, and I specifically remember it. it we were playing kickball. And um, in the middle of this kickball thing, I was like the the batter. It's not a battering kickball. What is it? The kicker, I guess. And, and uh, they, they rolled me the ball, and I kind of got paralyzed, and I couldn't kick it. And I just started thinking about what I wanted on my gravestone and how I wouldn't be around to see it. And I started crying, not really with sadness, but confusion, you know, because I just didn't really understand what it meant. And, and the teacher came to me and she said, what's, what's wrong? And I couldn't, I just didn't know if it, maybe this is such a Western attitude, you know, I, even at such a young age, we don't really realize how ingrained this stigma about death is. I didn't feel I could tell her. So I told her it was because my pet rabbit had run away and I was crying. She took me to uh, the office and they called my mother. It's like, oh, you know, your son's really upset. He's crying because his pet rabbit ran away. And she's like, well, that was two years ago. I didn't know he was still sad about it. Maybe we should get him another rabbit. You know, and I never really explained to anyone what had happened. But but just that in itself is telling, because like I said, we have this, such a stigma about death, and it's something that, um, you know, one of the trendy words for it is death positive. You know, to, not, not to look at death as something that's, oh boy, how fun it's going to be, but, you know, just to reclaim a more positive attitude towards it as, as a natural process. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's something that I would later think kind of reappeared throughout my life. You know, when I was in grad school, working towards my PhD, I was kind of like maybe the Fox Mulder of the Art History Department at UCLA. I was always working on these weird macabre macabre things, and a lot of them had to do with death or cannibalism or, you know, some kind of post-mortem thing or the afterlife. And um, and, uh, and then when I got out of grad school, I just started working on that stuff full-time and writing about it. I'm actually surprised that there's not more cannibalism known in the U.S. That, um, for, for all seriousness, that surprises me. I thought, for sure, when I did a little research on cannibalism a little while back, because I used to joke when people say, oh, you eat animals. I said, yeah, but, I mean, I'd eat humans, too, if I had to. If I, and if you they had got me to, down. If you had to, you probably would, and most people probably would. They would there never are, admit it, though. <laughs> well, that I don't know. There are very few. And I, this is something that I've studied. There are very few universal taboos. If you want to get into universal archetypes and taboos, there are very few. Uh, cannibalism is one of them. Incest is another of them. It's like you can go pretty much anywhere, and to perform incest, you're really considered a bad person. And the Mm. same thing with cannibalism. Yeah, Um, I would eat a person before I'd have sex with my brother, for sure. (laughs) Well, yeah, it depends on who you're eating and who your brother is, right? That's true. Um, uh, There are, in, in world history... There are a couple of societies who have performed cannibalism, but for, for some, on a symbolic level, like as part of a, a ritual. You mean like Catholics and Christians who take the Eucharist? Well, that's a, that, it's funny you mentioned that too, because, um, you know, 
alterity, you know, just constructing the outsider group as the other. Cannibalism has always historically been something they have been accused of. You know, when the Europeans first come to the Americas, oh my God, they're cannibals. Whether they had any indication that they were actually eating human flesh or not, they'd come back to Europe and say they're cannibals because it casts them as the other, it casts them as unsalvageable, and it, it aids in this discourse of domination. We have to dominate them because they're subhuman, because they're cannibals. And this has been going on. This has been going on since, you know, classical days. I mean, the outsider was always a cannibal. The outsider always looked like a monster. Cartoons. The outsider, yeah, all the yeah, cartoons yeah. that depict the Africans as cannibals, they always Absolutely. throw the person in the pot and cook it up. And Absolutely. And, uh, and in the great religious wars, that was another big form of propaganda, especially for the Protestants, because it was very easy. It's like, wait, what are you guys saying? You're saying that Christ's flesh literally, that this wafer literally becomes flesh? Doesn't this make you a cannibal? And it was a way of disparaging Catholicism as something that was irredeemable, that something really, really could not be considered a true faith for a human being because it had violated a taboo. And the Catholics, uh, <laughs> be damned, they insisted on transubstantiation being real. So it was very easy to throw that accusation at them. Mm. It's interesting to me that a lot of sci-fi, it is a great honor to be eaten. The cannibalistic of grokking or, you know, the, the, there's a lot of uh, eating of people as a way of honoring them or, or showing your admiration or to get their knowledge or that kind of thing. Well, it's a, it's a kind of form of... Of sacrifice or martyrdom, you, you self-martyrdom or something for the good of the cause to give of yourself to everyone else. For, for every, you know, for everything that's negative, there's always a flip side, you know, there's always mm. an ideal that can be found of it. And for everything that's positive, you can always find a negative side of it too. Sure. That's the yin and the yang of it, right? Yeah, yeah it is. So you are a child contemplating your own death. Yes. Did you decide what was going on that gravestone and has it changed? <sighs> <laughs> Look around, and I'll tell you, I wanted them to put he liked animals. We are surrounded by animals. animals. yeah. Parts of them. Parts, well, you know, this has been a problem for me. And one of the reasons that I'm getting rid of all this taxidermy, I mean, aside from the fact that spiritually I've just grown, outgrown the collection and I've outgrown the site, is that when I first started picking these up, because most of these have been with me for 15 years at least, I started picking them up before the whole oddities craze became popular. Back when nobody wanted them, and I specifically remember the first one I ever found, I had uh, some neighbors who used to sell at the flea market. And they came home one day from the flea market and in the box with their discards and stuff they couldn't sell was this old tattered goat's head. And I remember I walked outside and it was night and it was dark and I looked at him and I just felt this incredible sadness. I was like, Christ, someone killed you, threw you away, now now they're trying to sell you, and now they're, they failed to sell you, and now they're throwing you away, and that is so absolutely tragic and wrong. And I kind of said to myself, it's like, I gotta do something. What, what can I do for him? And I went in and I knocked on the neighbor's door, and I was like, are you getting rid of him? Is it, that's from the flea market? They're like, yeah, you want it? I was like, what do you want for it? They're like, 20 bucks. I was like, fine, I'm going to get you 20 bucks. I had them 20 bucks. And I took him inside, and I spent the next couple of days perfectly restoring him, restoring him absolutely beautiful. So he was, you know, obviously wasn't alive, but uh, he looked absolutely fantastic. And I started picking them up after that for the same reason, just because they had been discarded, and it filled me with this, this kind of horror, you know, that, that someone could kill and then and then disrespect the remains. Mm. 
And so I started adopting them almost like I was adopting a new pet or taking in a stray, you know, and I would always fix them up and try to make them beautiful again. And in the end, the reason I started decorating with them, you know, because it's like obviously, you know, to say that, oh, he's got a lot of taxidermy for most people, in, in most people's context, it means it's a bunch of trophy heads nailed to the wall. That's not what's happening here. None of them are displayed as trophy heads. In a way, it's more like an art installation in which I live and creating that kind of environment with them was a way for me of taking something that was dead but creating something that seemed organic, you know? Creating, I, I couldn't give them new life, but I gave them a new purpose. Rather than sitting around representing something dead, surrounding myself with them in this fanciful way and, you know, decorating with them in these strange and unexpected ways to create a, a totality of an environment in which each of them was an essential part. How old were you when you began this practice? In my 20s. I find it really interesting because the the idea of ritualizing death as an honor, you know, and th yeah. that you you began that work at such a without even realizing you were beginning the work. Yeah. Well, again, I mean, it was something that was. It's always been there in my mind ever since I was six, I guess, wasn't it? You know, it's like I love animals, and uh, and I've got this thing about death. So I guess, it, you know, and I guess when you run it back from here and you've written three books about the topic and so forth, you realize this has always been there in you, you know, this, these, these interests have always coincided. But at the same time now, you know, it's like these were all, these were all important to me at one time. Like I said, I, I changed as a person, but also my outlook has changed because... These are no longer discards. These are things that people want. And you know, when I when I say I'm moving, people instantly start asking, how much do you want for the lion? How much do you want for the kudos? How much do you want for the bicycle? None of them are for sale. I'm giving them all away. I'm giving them all to good homes because I don't want to see them become commodities, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and also, I've always known this, that um, it would be that taking them in as, as I felt I was as strays, I've always known that it would be very different if I was directly confronted with the killing process. Because in California, we're not, you know? If you live in Wisconsin or something, you're gonna see guys driving around with dead deer on the back of their truck, and you're gonna hear gunshots maybe out in the woods, and you're, you're a lot more confronted with the killing process than we are. California is not a big hunting state. We all know they died, and we all know they were shot, but we see the end result, you know, after they've been prepared, which looks beautiful, and we see pictures of them, you know, the, the living animals, not these particular ones, but the living animals, and they look beautiful, and we kind of, we kind of willingly forget that middle stage, you know, that they were shot, they were essentially raped of their skins, they were torn apart, and then they were, then they were stuffed. And um, one thing that social media has done is it has confronted us a lot more with the killing process. Like you can go on Instagram and you can look up certain accounts that are hunters and you'll see these like, there's one account that's this is like hot blonde girl with the big breasts and she's got this big rifle and she shoots things and she just, you know, she sits there on her pages smiling with this dead ram in front of her. And every time I see that, I walk in here where I've got these dead things and I feel like crying or throwing up because it's like, God, someone did that to you. Someone treated you like that, you know? And so it's like becoming more confronted with the killing process has also made it a lot more difficult for me to be around these heads, even though I know that I approached acquiring them with very good intentions. Mm. So you've made an arc. <laughs> kind of, yeah. 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 Do you feel you will mourn the loss of anything in here when you let it go, or have you... Well, I'm not getting rid of everything. Uh, there are some things that I still feel connected to that I will 
keep. Um, um, again, it's hard for the, the listener who can't see the place, but I'm keeping this vast, bizarre collection of paintings for sure. I'm keeping the taxidermy goats. I feel a connection to them because the whole thing started with the goats. I'm keeping this 120-year-old taxidermy Victorian dog because this one just feels like... You look at that dog, and you know this was someone's little princess, and that's the way I've styled her, with a little crown, you know, and a little amulet, and her own little throne thing. And it's I stunning think how alive she feels, even yeah, though yeah, I know yeah. she's not. There's yeah, a lot yeah. of There's character. something about her that feels like a little princess. Very regal. Keep her, yeah. Mm. So some of this stuff I'm going to keep. I'm not getting rid of all of it. It just depends on what I still feel connected to in some way. Why do you think Americans are so terrified of their own mortality? Everybody knows, everybody knows we die. Yeah. And we even, we uh, tempt fate and we tempt death constantly with alcohol and, and, now and drugs and ever. cigarettes and Now more cars. than ever, you know, it's Food like the people, well, I mean, the people who fall off a cliff trying to take a selfie, you <laughs> sure. know. Um, but that's an accidental death. I'm talking yeah, people yeah, that are actively well, yeah. doing things that they know will kill them. And yet there is this disconnect about death. People are terrified of death. I think... Um, I've always thought that it is not just America. It's, it's what we'd call Western culture mm. in general. Mm-hmm. I've always thought it actually had something to do with capitalism. And let me explain. We live in a growth-oriented society, and we have a growth-oriented economic model. Everything is about the future and about pushing forward, and there's nothing that anchors you to the past like being surrounded by death. Because, you know, it's like, trust me, I'm a guy who's done more photographs of corpses than anyone in the world, for sure. And there's a feeling I always have when I'm standing there alone in this chamber full of mummies or this room full of skulls, and it's like time collapses on you, you know, because you're standing in the present, you're looking at the past, but you're contemplating your own future. So it's a timeless sensation. And I think, and this is not just me who says this, actually, it's like Baudrillard talked about this too and and he said that we had to sever our connection to death we had to cut that cord in order to be as future oriented as we wanted to be we had to sever that anchor because it was going to keep us caught in the past and so i think i think he's right I believe that. I think it has something to do with that. There's a lot more to it as well. Obviously, there are a lot of factors. There's never one single factor in something that's this vast. Um, there was something that happened in the early 19th century that was also vitally important in changing our relationship with death, which was the growing understanding of disease. Um, you know, because the dead used to be just buried anywhere. You know, they, they would bury them. You know, the, and they'd cemetery. leave them out, right? They'd be like, oh, Grandma's so, in the kitchen, hanging out, yes, she's I, dead. You know, they, but they'd bury them in the cemetery, <laughs> which was the churchyard, you know? And then when that was filled, they would just bury more, and they would just... Yeah. And um, eventually you had cities like Paris where... Um, around the Cemetery of the Innocents, the soil was so permeated with human goo, and the soil had been so exhausted that the corpses could no longer decompose, so they were turning into this goo, and people's houses were just kind of sinking into this human goo in some neighborhoods. And, um, And there was this growing understanding of the spreading of disease, and so the dead became a contaminant, and in some ways unfairly so. I spent a lot of time with mummies who are extremely old, and you're not gonna get a disease from them. After a certain time, the body is no longer contagious 
advantageous for anything. It's essentially just an old shoe. It's just a leather object, you know. But but uh, you know when they became potential contaminants, when they became physical pollutants, I think they also became psychological pollutants as well. So like I say, you can come up with any number of reasons why. Um, also, um, around World War One in particular, um, and f this is something that Freud write, wrote about, that um, he's the one who term, who coined the term the denial of death. And he wrote it in particular around about the, the, the wars and the early part of the 20th century and the stigma they had on human psychology. So it's something that is, it's very new. Um, it's actually, in terms of human history, very abnormal to ghettoize the dead and push them away the way we have. Um, it's very new and um, uh, to answer your question, there's any multitude of reasons why it took over in Western society. It's funny, though, because um, there is, for instance, we don't, we, we have such hubris in, in Western culture that we just naturally assume that whatever we do and however we think is the correct way. And we don't realize how aberrant we are when it comes to the way we treat the dead. There's this festival that I was at a few years back in Indonesia. It goes on in certain villages every year. Every village does do it at the same time. But you may have heard of it. It's called the Menene Festival, and it's in Tana Taraj on Sulawesi. And that's when they take um, the mummies out of the tombs because they mummify their relatives, and they take them out of the tombs, and they dress them up, mm -hmm. and they talk to them, and they walk them around the village. And I've been to that, and I photographed it. And, um, and you know, uh, now it's a little bit known. Uh, the first time I went, it wasn't no, known at all. And the pictures that I took wound up going on all these websites with these stories like zombies in Indonesia or something and all these horror stories and people saying all these weird things and, oh, it's my God, it's so sick. They're, you know, they're, they're absolutely sick people without realizing that, you know, um, up into the early 20th century, in some parts of Italy, for instance, it was still typical to mummify your parents and put them on display in the church crypt. For instance, Palermo, the, the largest collect, the largest in situ collection of mummies anywhere in the world is in Palermo, Sicily. It's not in South America, it's not in Egypt, it's in Palermo, Sicily, which we would consider the good civilized West, you know? They have the largest in situ collection of mummies anywhere in Palermo in those catacombs, and up until the 20th century, people were still mummifying their relatives and putting them on display, and they were coming down on on November 2nd, hmm. the Day of the Dead, mm -hmm. and they were coming down, and they were redressing their relatives and in their clothes. Bejeweling them and, and everything. talking yeah. to them and telling their family news. And this is, you know, this is only a century ago. And, um, you know, nowadays this is considered, like, you know, they're doing this in Indonesia, and people on my Instagram feed or online will say, this is a sign of mental illness. A hundred years ago in Italy, it was a sign of a loving son. Isn't that interesting? It is interesting. We're, we we don't realize how queer our relationship with the dead actually is. Because hmm. cross-culturally and historically, it's the other way. It's not this ghettoization. How do you want to be dealt with upon your death? You know, and I honestly don't care. And I've, I've been asked that question a lot. And I always think I should lie and come up no. with some really fancy answer. Because um, I got into studying the dead... Not because I had a particular agenda, just out of curiosity. It doesn't mean that I believe any of these ways are right. You know, right is only what meets the needs of a culture. That's right. You know, it's right to do what they do in Tana Taraja and take the mummies around. It would be wrong to do that in London. It would be wrong because it would cause a panic. So right is whatever fits the needs of a culture in the most healthy way. 
I would say, and I've always said this, and I mean it, I think it should be up to a vote of my friends. Mm. And just like, hey, you know, here's a form. You know, do you guys want to mummify me? Do you want to boil my skeleton and put me on a taxidermy lion? What do you want to do? You guys go ahead and choose, because I really don't care. Because in the end, the way we treat the dead is about the living. It's not about the dead at all. You know, there are all these, across the United States, there are all these museums, and many of them consider themselves to be death positive, and they're anatomy museums, and they, they, you know, they have classes, but none of them will let you take a photo because the dead don't want to be photographed oh my god you know I've been around a lot of dead people they don't care it's for it's all for the living you know um, so I would say let my friends decide have you ever been afraid around death whether it's personal or or this in your studies no uh, I was run over by a truck once and I was plenty afraid about that <laughs> but, uh, you know, you're afraid when your own mortality is challenged, but uh, afraid of the dead? No, never. They're not going to hurt you. I think that um, that our current fascination with zombies and horror films and all the stuff in Western culture, it actually comes because we've lost a meaningful contact with the dead. Because I think humans throughout history have always had that. You know, the Egyptians believed in the Ka, that the soul would return and they could talk to it. And the Romans had the parentalia, you know, which was, you know, like a you know, feast of the ancestors and they would take out all the ancestor busts and have, have a dinner. And we don't do stuff like that anymore. But I think just somehow intuitively, as human beings, we all feel we, we, we really desire a contact with the dead. We really desire a contact with those people who have passed on. And we've been so deprived of it in Western culture that I think it's manifested itself in these kind of unhealthy ways. You know, this, this weird fixation with zombies and horror films and this idea that, that the dead are coming back to hurt us because we, we've lost all context for them just being our friends. Well, I think because we're many of us are out of touch with our own... Uh, God self, yeah. that we take the divine out of the everyday things. We take the divine out of it. You are so right about that. And it's funny because um, I was just having a conversation with, about this with someone uh, who was, you know, giving me the standard line. It's like, well, you know, like science and religion are on two opposite spectrums, like they're enemies. And that is so untrue. If you look at the great scientists across history, they were all actually profoundly spiritual men. Believing in science has nothing to do with disbelieving in God or any kind of spiritual system. And uh, are, do you know the uh, epitaph that Alexander Pope wrote for Isaac Newton? Hmm. Closer to God may no man go. <laughs> so Newton wasn't challenging God in his work, according to the English of the day, he was showing us that the universe is so incredibly complex and so incredibly perfect, there has to be a God, because how could something this perfect happen by accident? Hmm. So, but you're right, we've taken the divine out of everything. I want to talk about the ritual, the ritual of death, both of going into death and then coming out the other side. Um, is there any particular culture that really captivated you with their process? It's a big question. Yeah, it's a big question. Um, it's also a question, and I don't mean this answer to, to bow out of the question. I, I, I'm just going to, it's just the truth. Um, it's not really my area, which sounds so corny. Mm. The thing is that... Um, <sighs> 
I, I, I had to draw a line somewhere in mm. what I'm studying or it will never stop. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like, because ultimately what I was doing was writing books about things. And, you know, it's like when I was doing the Charnel House book, people would ask me these questions that are, you know, ostensibly kind of ridiculous. Like, uh, are you going to include like Jeffrey Dahmer's art with bones? And it's like, uh, no. Uh, you know, because it's like what, what I was doing in particular was studying in these books the way the dead were displayed for the the benefit of the living and what the living got out of the display of the dead. So, of course, I would have to study what was involved spiritually, but my real interest was in the way the dead were displayed, either their bones or their bodies or something like that. So that was my real area. Well, you bring up an interesting point, though, because serial killers ritualize their, their dead in a lot of ways. I mean, didn't... Um, Ed Gein makes shoes or something out of the skin? Well, his... Ed Gein was a really ambitious guy. I mean, he was making an entire suit. Mm-hmm. Um, but that <laughs> was just, not... The listeners just went, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, Ed was, a, Ed was a bad guy. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I'm talking about, in particular, not uh, unique and eccentric and what society would consider perverse belief system held by a single individual out of an antisocial impulse, I'm talking about something that unifies society as a whole, you know, that it's like, okay, you know, it's like we had this room completely filled with mummies underneath the church at one time, and the reason we had it was because society could participate in this dialogue with the people who had passed on. So I'm not talking about that kind of thing like an Ed Gein type of guy, and you're right, I mean, it is a ritual for him. Um, It's not a defined religion, but I suppose it takes the place of that for him. But that was never the kind of thing that I was studying. Hmm. It was something that unified society in a, let's call it a positive way. Yeah. On your, the book, there, there's, there's some research where you, you talked about um, going to Italy huh? and the, did you spend time, do you speak the language? Did, were you able to ask people, hey, what, it, what are you feeling about taking your ancestors out and putting them, bejeweling them and putting them in clothes? Well, they're and, not doing it anymore. There's I, no, I thought there still was some of that going on. In not in Italy. Oh, not okay. in Italy. In Indonesia. Okay. Um, there is a very vibrant kind of subculture uh, involving skulls where they live in the house and are protective in Bolivia. Every November, I've been in Bolivia every November 8th for the last like 12 or 13 years for this festival called Fiesta de las Nietitas, where the people who live in Nietita in Aymara is like, um, it's kind of um, a nickname for a skull. It means like the little pug-nosed one. And people will have some skulls in their house and um, not necessarily even of relatives. It might be, uh, you know, just one they found or they bought or they got from a med school, but they feel they've connected with the spirit of that skull and it becomes like a family member. And uh, every November 8th, those people will take the skulls back to the cemetery and they'll dress them up and decorate them for this gigantic party. Uh, There's... um, there's a ritual uh, that in for one tribe in Madagascar where once a year they take the last dead relative out of the grave. They, wa- they wrap them up in this white shroud and they will all dance. All the family members will dance with them. And sometimes they'll even take the, um, the corpse wrapped in the shroud. They'll take it home for a meal and they'll set it at the head of the table. And it's really it's for the kids, you know, because it's a way of saying to the kids, it's like that guy there is the one who connects all of us sitting, like for every one of us sitting here at the table, 
that guy connects us to dozens of generations more like us who once sat at this table. And it's a way of introducing the children into family history. So this stuff still goes on in the world. It certainly doesn't go on in a place like Italy anymore. Mm. Or America. Oh, and America. <laughs> the neighbors would talk. <laughs> well, um, you know, we make, you know, I've already made a, an unfair generalization by just referring to Western culture in general. There's some places that I've been where it's actually, the stigma's even greater. Um, I did my first photography show that I ever did was in outside of the United States. My first uh, photography show outside of the USA was in Sweden. And um, it was uh, this, this woman who runs a gallery had set it up in this old um, medieval church that she had rented out for this show. And there were performances and so forth. And my photos lying the wall, really beautiful place. And um, she said, you know, I set up an interview for you with the local newspaper. But uh, I have to tell you, they're not that, uh, people in Sweden are not that keen on this kind of stuff. I just have to warn you before the reporter comes. I was like, well, I don't know. You know, so far, everybody seems really great. She's like, yeah, that's because you're dealing with us. You're not dealing with society at large yet. And I didn't, I was like, well, whatever, I'm sure it's fine. And, and then the newspaper reporter comes in, and I sit down at the table with the newspaper reporter, and her first question to me, her very first question was, is it okay for people to look at pictures like yours? I was like, what? what? You know, that took me to a level that even in America I've never had to deal with. Like, is it okay to even look at the pictures? Hmm. So there are some places where the stigma is really great. America and Los Angeles is a little bit, like Los Angeles is kind of an aberration in America, actually. Los Angeles, of every city, every major city in America, Los Angeles is probably the most death positive. Just because we have such an influx of the Latin immigrants in Latin communities, not just that. Latin communities, also mm -hmm. from Asia, mm -hmm. where they've never had, uh, you know, a lot of places. I've traveled a lot in Asia, and a lot in a lot of places in Asia, there's a real interest and a real belief in ghosts, for instance. Um, and so uh, the the influx of people from Asia and India have created an environment that's, I think, in Los Angeles, a lot more open to talking about death and to being a little bit more positive about it rather than just shutting it off and ghettoizing it. Um, and this is kind of new in LA since we've absorbed all this immigration. If you go back to Forest Lawn, you know, Forest Lawn in Glendale, take a look at the old part of Forest Lawn and there's a, a monument that really sums things up. Um, you'll be looking out, it's kind of on that flat area that's down below, and you'll be looking out over this lawn, this, this grass-covered lawn, with all the headstones set in. So if you stand back at the correct angle, you can't even see the headstones, you only see gra grass, right? And then you'll see this obelisk rising up. It's the only thing you can see in the field, is obelisk rising up. And there's a title on that obelisk, and it says Slumberland. Hmm. So it's like the, you know, the stigma at one time was so great that we couldn't even admit they were dead. <laughs> They're only sleeping. Mm -hmm. They're just sleeping, and that's all. Mm-hmm. Or the dog has gone to live on a farm or, you know, all that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, you bring up ghosts, which I, I'm glad because uh, part of your work, I, I saw it said um, sex ghosts? Yeah. Um, what yeah, is this? Well, yeah, I, you know, it was something that I started studying out of in personal interest because the stories are fascinating. In a way, it's come back to, pardon the pun, haunt me a little bit because I keep getting asked about it a lot. Um, I've done a lot of lectures on this topic, and 
I coined that term sex ghost just because there was no other term that I could come up with for it. Just erotic ghost stories, hauntings that had a sexual or erotic overtone to them, which it turns out there's really a lot of them, a lot, and a lot of very famous and prominent people have reported instances of some kind of haunting which was sexual in nature. It's just they never get talked about because our stigma with death in this culture is such that it's bad enough to tell someone you've seen a ghost because they're going to think you're a crackpot, then tell them you've had sex with a ghost and they're really going to think you need to be locked away. But it's something that's been going on throughout history. To be honest, if you look at... Um, a lot of ancient mythology, you're going to find what I would call an erotic haunting story. For instance, think of the story of uh, Zeus and Danae. Okay, so Danae is locked in this tower by her father. He doesn't want her to be touched by any man, but Zeus is really hot for her. So what does Zeus do? He turns himself into this golden mystical cloud. And this golden mystical cloud permeates her chamber and takes shape before her and has sex with her in this shower of gold. This is the original golden shower, and it's what we would consider a ghost story. Now, back in those days, they just considered it not a haunting, they considered it the acts of a god. There's another one uh, in Greek mythology um, about a guy who uh, is on the other side of the country, and um, he comes home one night, and he makes mad love and passionate love to his wife, and then she wakes up the next day to find that he's never come back. He's still on the other side of the country, you know, but we would, again, we would consider this a haunting. They just considered it an act of the gods. Think about the ecstasy of St. Teresa. Mm. That's as much of an erotic ghost story as I've ever heard. It's just, well, you know, she's a really, really prominent Catholic nun who's receiving the gospel, what she, what she claims is the gospel, by this glowing form of an angel who, who appears before her and penetrates her innards with a flaming rod that causes pain that is so sweet she does not wish for it to stop it's the most orgasmic vision that i've ever heard uh but you know they just call it uh, um you know they just call it uh, inspiration from an angel they're not going to accuse her of having sex with a ghost so it's something that's been going on throughout history and when i've done lectures on this i've brought up this entire history of it and then i proceeded to more modern versions of of these kinds of sexualized ghost stories. I found a lot of them when I was working in Sicily. Um, Sicily is a place where the veil between the living and the dead was real paper thin at one point in time, you know, because that was the last place that he was even having the mummies around. And um, there are a lot of ghost stories from there, and a lot of them are very sexual in nature. I need to get me a, a sex ghost. <laughs> get one, you know? Get me summon, a sex ghost. I saw there was some woman that was on one of the talk shows about, this was recently, last year, saying that she was having an affair with a ghost and that yeah. they were going to get married. And, you know, she, of course, was laughed about. And I, I thought, well, you never know. <laughs> I mean, what the hell? I mean, it's, it, it's problematic because I use the term ghost out of convenience for other people. I don't know what it is. I don't know that. I don't know what. I, I'll say this. I believe in the phenomena. 
I don't necessarily believe in the interpretation of it. Mm. That is the spirit of a particular dead person that we once know, knew mm. that has returned. Mm -hmm. Do you believe in the soul? Not in a standard Christian sense. What In what sense, then? I believe in a kind of animus, like a life force that inhabits us that's connected to greater things. Mm -hmm. I like that. That's a good way to put it. Tell me about the demon cats. Well... I do. <laughs> uh, I have done a lot of lectures and studies on the history of felines. My cat herself is writing a book. My next, my next book is really my cat's first book. I've helped her a little writing it. Sure. Yeah, someone is. Sex ghostwriter. She, uh, <laughs> cats aren't really allowed in the research library, so I had to help her out a little yeah. bit. But um, uh, I've done a lot of study in feline history. And... Um, the Egyptians... The Egyptians, of course, but there was a time, you know, when cats were not liked. And this is a big part of the book. You know, the, the greatest genocide, if you can apply that term to animals, the greatest genocide in history towards animals has been, was against cats in Europe, you know, because they were considered, they, because they were residual pagan symbols, because the pagans loved them so much, the Europeans at one point in time turned on them with vitriol. And for centuries, they were being thrown into bonfires, symbols of the devil. They were consorts with witches and so forth. And um, there was this, um, in fact, there was this theory at one time that you could unmask a witch by attacking a cat. That if uh, you saw a suspicious cat that you didn't know, that you would run up to it and like, you know, hack off one of its ears or something. And then, then you would just search the village the next day to see if a, there was a woman without an ear because, you know, the, obviously she had been the cat. Uh, so cats really had it bad for a long time. And it led to this theory that um, of all the animal kingdom, that cats were the most amenable to the demonic possession. So when I've done, I don't believe that cats are demons, and I don't believe that they've ever been possessed by demons. I don't know that I've believed in demons, so this is more like, this is more like a folklore lecture, you know? But um, it led to this assumption that cats could easily be um, possessed by demons. That often strikes people as a little Odd, but you have to realize that um, our conception of a demon is really a horror movie conception of a demon. What does a demon want? A demon wants to infiltrate human society any way it can in order to cause mischief and strife, right? Okay, well, humans have the first line of defense to keep demons out, which is faith. Humans have a capacity for faith that animals don't. So it was considered much more easy, much easier among some demonologists to enter a human city in the guise of an animal than as a human. And it was since cats were considered consorts with the devil anyway, of course they decided that cats would be the most amenable to possession by demons. And so cats would kind of willingly give themselves over to demons and allow the demons to enter into them and then, um, you know, work various forms of mischief. And, um, and as exotic as this all sounds to people nowadays, we have a lengthy history of demonically possessed cats, even in the United States. Um, you can look this up. The most famous demonically possessed cat ever Look this up. You can. It's. It, you'll even find it on Google. It's not that obscure. Uh, look up the demonic cat of the U.S. Capitol building, and you'll find all kinds of stuff. Because around the time the Civil War was ending, 
um, they, they started reporting this apparition in the U.S. Capitol of what they thought was a demonically possessed cat. And it was this black cat that would appear, some people thought that the Confederacy had planted it there. And this black cat would appear and then disappear in the, in the, the crypt. Originally, the, the Capitol building had a crypt underneath that was supposed to be for George Washington, and he was never buried there. And he, the cat would appear there, and over a series of nights, it would get bigger and bigger and more menacing. And I even have um, old newspaper drawings that I found. I found one in one of the Philadelphia newspapers, and, and they had an artist do a sketch of what they thought the demonically possessed cat looked like. And it was this huge, monstrous beast chasing a couple of workers down the hall. And so over a period of time, uh, it it would get bigger and bigger and then it would disappear and then it would be gone and then you know it's like you could exhale but then it would start again and um, they would try to link it up with national disasters so for instance um, they would kind of keep like running tabs it's like okay well you know this cat appeared right before this hurricane hit Galveston it's one of the worst hurricanes in American history it appeared right before the San Francisco earthquake so it's like this, this demonic cat and it's like harbinger of doom there was another one that they called the hex cat in Pennsylvania and it was in the early 20th century and um, on June 6, 1906, a black cat gave birth to a litter of six kittens. So, you know, obviously that's bad news, right? And eventually some, there was some kind of mysterious apparition that started to appear in the village. And um, some guy died mysteriously. The guy who owned the property that the cats were born on died mysteriously. And so um, the people in this town... Um, there are all kinds of old newspaper reports about this. This is this isn't folklore. Like the, the cats, you know, believe me, the cats are demons. It's folklore as far as I'm concerned. But um, the rest of it isn't. This is true. The people in the town got a bunch of silver and they melted the silver into bullets and they went out into the forest with these silver bullets to try to scare this thing away and shoot at it. I actually have a theory on that one because um, they said this gigantic black cat started appearing. And menacing their cattle, you know, there there is a phenomenon of black mountain lions, you know, that have, and still, even like five or six years ago in Pennsylvania, someone reported a black mountain lion. I think maybe somehow around the same time, a black mountain lion was wandering around. They just that that's it, and they decided the demon was in it or the devil was in it, and they went out with their silver bullets and they started shooting at it, and it never returned. As most cats won't return if you shoot at them. Hmm. But, you know, they said they had scared the, the demon away. But anyway, yeah, the, the demonically possessed cats, we have a lengthy history of them here in the United States. Yeah, that's very fascinating. Um, as you decide to go to the next thing, so this yeah. house will be dismantled. This weekend, yeah. This weekend. And you said earlier off, off record that you weren't really sure what's next for yeah. you, where, where you're being drawn to. How, how does one segue from this <laughs> and this is a very bold life that you live it's a very um, big life it's i don't know the answer to your question and that's the beauty of it for me because i don't know the plan right now is just to not have a plan for mm. once i'm in a position where i can afford to do that psychologically and financially right now so uh, i'm just gonna go forth without a plan and see what happens as i, I was telling ruth um, it's not just a Los Angeles thing, it's really a national thing. Everybody I know seems dissatisfied with whatever city they're living in and they can't come up with any place that's better to go. 
So I've just decided, you know, I've outgrown this place spiritually and psychologically, so I'm. it's time for a change. I realize I accomplished something in creating this. It doesn't mean I have to be a prisoner to it if I no longer feel it's the appropriate space for me. So, also, transmogrification is a beautiful thing. Well, yeah, you know, and, and people keep asking. It's like, how can you turn your back on something you've created? And it's like, to create something new. You know, and there's cliche to say, but every act of creation involves an act of destruction. So I'm destroying this place, and uh, I don't know what comes next, to answer your question, and I'm really looking forward to it. It's exciting. Out. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, a leap and the net will appear. Or no net and the wings will appear. Or the scales or whatever it is. Yeah, I guess it's just a matter <laughs> or of the faith. Or the sex ghost. Yeah, it's <laughs> ghost. just a matter of faith and the sex ghosts and the demonic cats will be waiting for me in the pit. That's right. Uh, how might people find you, should they desire? Uh, they can find me on Instagram. You can follow me there. H-E-X-E-N-K-U-L-T. Um, I do have a website, uh, empiredelamort.com, Empire of Death in French, because, of course, in English, everything's always taken. But um, that it's is better really, in French, anyway. It, it sounds better in French. Um, that really, but that website really hasn't been updated in a long time. If you're interested in the death stuff and you're interested in seeing some of the photos and getting a list of the names of sites and so forth, that's all on there. Mm. Uh, but uh, I got to admit, I'm just not the kind of person who updates his website really I, ever. I get it. it was really more, that was something <laughs> that was there more just to support the books. And so people sure. would have a means to contact me about things. And I'll put links to everything on Hey Human Podcast website sure. as well. Um this has been fascinating. Well, thank you for coming. I'm uh, excited to... I have not read your books, although they... I Read the second one's actually better. As which talks. one is second? Is that the Heavenly, Heavenly Bodies. Bodies? Heavenly Bodies. The first one was by my accounting... They really forced me to do it in too academic a way. I'm not trying to deride my own work. It's a really bad idea to criticize your own product. I mm -hmm. think I think it was just it, it was more academic than I would have liked it. The third one's the most beautiful because mm -hmm. I wanted I let the pictures tell the story instead of mm -hmm. me butting in with the text. But I really like that second book in terms of the text. I'm excited. I'm personally fascinated by death. Yeah. Oh, uh, and I know. Then get the third one. Third one's got those pictures. That by the third one, I told the publisher, I'm tired of talking in the place of the pictures. Just mm -hmm. let's just let the pictures lead the way, and I'll just add some text where it needs to go. Mm -hmm. I look forward to it, and I'm glad that Ruth told me about you. Uh, even though it was two days ago, I didn't have a That's lot of time, but it's able to work it it's out. wonderful. I, if Ruth is interested, I'd love to get her on air for a second. Yeah, come, come on here, on Ruth. Yeah. Are you cat sitting or? Are you yeah. <laughs> she, she found my handbag, so oh, she, likes, she likes. Oh, to every cat me. loves that handbag. Yeah. Um. Ruth, you, how long have you known Paul of his work and such? Boy, I don't know. Feel free to scooch in to the oh, okay. technology. Maybe, uh, scooch yeah, into the technology. I, I don't want to infringe on the princess. Um, I honestly don't know how long we've known each other. I mean, I know that w the, the circles that we met in, but uh, 20 years? Yeah, maybe. Maybe 25? I mean, time yeah. is such a bizarre construct. Yeah. To, to think of what was what was 20 years. Oh, I'm sure we met somewhere in the 90s. Cacophony Society, maybe? Yeah. 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 Or, or just just the general La Luz de Jesus yeah, yeah, sort yeah. of circle, yeah, like sure. the art gallery sure. thing? Yeah. Well, in so. the realm of Obscura, I would say, Paul here is, is definitely at the top of the list. So how, what was it about your 
that's a compliment, by the way. <laughs> uh, what drew you into all of this and him? Well, she's never been here I've before. I've never been, been to this but, 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 but you, I what, mean... What drew me to, to Paul, he's he's dressed down right now because he's casual and he's he's been doing stuff. It's casual just Thursday. out of the shower and yeah. it's, yeah, it's casual Wednesday or Thursday. I don't know what day but, it is. Uh, I never know what day it is. <laughs> I don't either. But, That's um, a problem when you're doing business. But Paul is a person who puts a lot of attention to detail in his outfits mm. and his presentation. <laughs> and, uh, and this is the, I am the queen of understatement here. Paul, to say Paul stands out in a crowd, Paul would stand out in a crowd of the most unusual people you've ever known. Well, you look around here, I'm not exactly a minimalist. <laughs> That's and a good I point. Would never, I would no. never claim to be. And we just always ran into each other in the same weird, bizarre places. And I was like, hey, that guy. And he was like, hey, that girl. And at some point we talked. And well, that's the thing about L.A. And I've said a lot of negative things about it. Obviously, I'm not satisfied with it because I'm leaving. The one thing I do love about it, and I've always loved about it, are the people. Yeah. yeah, everyone that you meet here is... Well, it's, it's a vortex. Well, I wouldn't well, not say everyone, everybody. Not everyone. Yeah. Certainly not everyone else. Yeah. Um, Rewind. But there's always <laughs> been here. Um, there's something about true alternative culture in Los Angeles or weirdo culture, whatever you want to whatever you want to call it that is very welcoming and very authentic here. Yeah. Well, the yeah. vortex is real. The vortex exists. It, it, it brought uh, Parsons here and 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 for, for for all what you'll say about him, L. Ron Hubbard, before he started the whole Scientology mm -hmm. business, he was all about esotericism and, and the OTO and, and, and genuine magic. I mean, there, there has been this vortex yeah, of weirdness absolutely. here. Yeah, well, you can feel Cal Southern California in yeah, general, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but, but in you know, Pasadena with you know, certainly the, the whole Jack Parsons, that, that gate of hell is in Pasadena. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've heard yeah. about the gate of hell. Yeah, that, there's a gate to hell in Pasadena. That's exciting. Yeah. Uh, your art collection yeah. on the ceiling yes. as well as the walls, but mostly on the ceiling. Yeah. Uh, what is it that you... There is certainly a theme here and there. Obviously, there's animals and there's people and that, but what is it that, that draws you into these images? They remind me of... Well, if I were to stumble upon a house in the woods <laughs> and walk in and there would be a mischievous magician person that owned the house, this would I be mean, its artwork. It's, a, it's eclectic for sure. Um, this house was really intended as a manifestation of me. And so what you're seeing, really, I mean, it's convoluted and strange and it twists and turns and sometimes it doesn't seem to reconcile it itself, but you're really seeing me psychologically. You're, you're seeing a reflection of all these different interests that I have. Hmm. Okay. So to me, is there, there one is cohesion. Is there a re more resonant that, that you see it and you think, yes, this... No, no, there's no one particular painting that I'd say, oh yeah, that's just, that's just me, you know? Interesting. Um, this reminds me actually, the one right here, the orange with the blue, reminds me of a piece I've actually painted. I painted that. You did? That's one of the very few that I painted. Fascinating, because I have a painting that looks very much like it. I'll show you a picture when we're done, and uh, that's very interesting. Oh, incredible. I'm going to actually take pictures yeah, and anything, video and post them um, uh, on the Hey, hey Human Podcast Facebook sure. page so that people can go and look at it and see what this all see is. See what we've been talking Anything about. Want to do. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's very difficult to express what this is. And, well, um, 
There was a golden time that I think has passed. You know, people ask me, like, where the hell did you get these paintings? And the answer is China. And most of them came from China because there, you know, there are these painting factories in China. And, um, and you would just kind of like tell this guy, um, this was like maybe 12 years ago when I started decorating the ceiling like this. And I would just tell these Chinese guys, yeah, uh, I need um, a Doberman Pinscher dressed like Queen Elizabeth I. And they would basically say, who's Queen Elizabeth I? And you'd send him a picture and he's like, okay. And, you know, uh, at the time, I'm not kidding, because a friend of mine, since I'm going to be disassembling this place, a friend came over and she's like, God, where the hell did you get these paintings? How much did they cost? I was like, $10 each. You know, real cheap. And she's like, you've got to be kidding. And I went back in my old Hotmail account that I don't even use anymore, and I pulled up the old invoices. And I was wrong, because a lot of these I was getting for less, like five or six bucks. You know, they would just paint them really fast, because it was like, there were literal painting factors. Like, in China... You've got these factories where they do all the hotel art, okay? And so, like, the kind of stuff you might see at a Holiday Inn or, or a cheap restaurant and um, that they sell at the hotel art sales. And so you'll, you'll have a guy, and his specialty is, like, the horizon line. He just sits there, and he does the horizon line, passes it to the next guy, and the next guy does the bushes, and the next guy has, like, a certain sponge to do the clouds with, and they just kind of crank them along this line. And they do paintings incredibly fast, cheaper than it would cost for you to even buy the paints. And so I had been traveling in Asia a lot, and I met this guy who runs a painting factory. And so I was just telling him, it's like, uh, hey, uh, do you know who Goya is and his witch's Sabbath? And he'd be like, no. It's like, okay, I'm going to send you a picture. I need Goya's witch's Sabbath, but horizontal instead of vertical. And the horizon has to hit at exactly this level. Because see where that lamp is? Because that lamp had a green bulb in it. And it had to illuminate it so the two worked together with the green bulb. And he's like, oh, okay. And he'd be like, you know, special order 20 bucks or something, you know. And they'll get you, they'll get you a little on the shipping, you know. It's like... They're going to they're gonna jack up the price on the shipping and get you a little on that, but that's more than fine. Uh, you just tell them, it's like, send it unstretched. Just, I'm going to order 10 paintings, roll them all in a tube, and just charge me whatever you want for shipping. Huh. There you go. Wow. I, and I don't know if those painting factories are still around or what. I'm sure they I'm are. I'm sure they general. are. Absolutely. I don't know if they're still doing work this cheap, because you got to remember, at the time... There was a time when the Chinese were deliberately devaluing the yuan. And it was a big problem in America and, and in Europe. They didn't like it because it may, it, there was no possible way that locally we could compete with Chinese goods because they were deliberately devaluing their own currency so that these guys were getting paid the equivalent of, you know, like pennies per hour to crank out this stuff so that they could sell it in America for nothing. It's like the music industry and songwriters. <laughs> I guess, yeah. But anyway, so, so that's why I don't know, even if you found the painting workshops, I don't know that you're getting these paintings for $6 anymore. Sure, sure. It's fascinating. I, I really encourage everyone listening to go to the Facebook page for Hey Human Podcast because it's going to blow your mind when you see all this stuff. It's really something. Paul, thank you for your yeah, time and you. for bringing me into your home. And Ruth, thank you for the introduction. My pleasure. I'm glad that it all came together because I didn't very realize quickly. how quickly, yeah. uh, how, how close to the to the to the end we were. Yeah. So I'm, I'm well, very grateful that I didn't. It's not like I would tell anybody. 
publicly <laughs> that I'm tearing my house apart at this time. I mean, just even the idea that I was has caused me to get emails from people all over the country saying, it's "Can like, I have your yak head?" Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like I'll pay shipping for such and right. such. It's like sure. no, or what you no, said, no, turn it into no, a museum no, because no, no, no. you see something like this, and you and and the idea that it's it's all coming apart is. You know, I mean, from your point of view, of course, it's all coming apart. It all came together. It has to all come apart. But but somebody who's seeing it and appreciate it and doesn't have the capacity to put it all together is thinking this is well, a tragedy. Yeah, <laughs> there's another aspect which no one considers, which is they all say like, but you know, you've created a work of art. How can you tear it apart? Because you don't have to live in it. I have a lot of things as well. I have a very unusual home, but uh, I can't hold a candle to this. I don't yeah. have I don't have taxidermy heads hanging off chains from the ceiling that bump into your head when you walk under that. We're very so, no. tall, however. Well, I am pretty tall. Yeah, but uh, but the mandalas, right? Those are made to be destroyed. When I went, that's right. Mandalas are I, made to be to be to be created, to be experienced, and then to be to be cast to the wind. That's right. When I went and did the body painting, ten and a half hours, I stood while an artist, uh, Cheryl Ann, painted me from head to toe, in and out, so to speak, and uh, and it was it was an ex I say extraordinary a lot, but it really was. It was an extraordinary experience. I it took ten and a half hours, as I said, and in the end, I had to wash it away. I looked in the mirror and I thought, this is what I actually look like. It was beautiful yeah. and colorful and. And astounding to behold, and but I had to get know, in a shower and wash it all away in ten minutes, ten and a half hours <laughs> to let, put it on. But letting go. Yes. And I'm letting go. And that's a beautiful thing. And You're not just, afraid of death. That's, that's right. It's also no. I am afraid of death. I'm not afraid to walk forward in spite of that. Mm. Um, letting go is really an important lesson to learn. Yes. It's very hard to receive new things if your hands are full with old things. That's true, too. That's true. Yeah. Paul, thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. Beware of demonic cats and sex ghosts, unless you're into that kind of thing. Bye. Bye.